Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be back with you. It's been a couple weeks since I've I've been here. Uh, we had Maisie was playing in a softball World Series a couple weeks back, and then uh, Matt and I joined all the high schoolers and middle schoolers at, or actually high schoolers at camp uh, over in Montreat for a week. And then uh, at the back of that, I had, uh, uh, Maisie had a basketball, basketball tournament in uh, Atlanta. So i uh, kind of been around um, the place and not here. And so I've missed you guys, but I'm glad that we have people like Jody and Matt. And last week, uh, an amazing musician, Charles Hewlin, if you were here last week to hear him uh, speak and play, it was a great time. And so um, it's great to have so many good voices here um, at this place. So um, we're going to go back into our series, but I want to start with a question to you about hospitality. And so the question is going to be on the screen behind me, but I want you to think about this. Have you ever experienced radical hospitality? And what I mean by that is, have you ever been to a place where someone went out of their way to make you feel so welcome, right? Have you ever experienced that? And on the flip side, have you ever experienced horrible hospitality, right? Like where you felt very unwelcomed in a place. I want you to take a moment. This is kind of where we get the chance to talk and say hello. Look to someone around you, and I want you just to share one of those moments of an awesome hospitality or horrible hospitality. Share for a minute, and then we'll come back together. Hopefully, if you've had a chance to kind of share a story, I'm hoping that uh, your experience here has been a positive one. Hope no one shared about their whole goal experience here. Um, if not, uh, um, the Baptist Church, they started at 11 down the road um, if you're looking for a new place. But I hope that you've come here and you've felt welcomed. We, we're intentional about making people feel welcome as they come through the doors uh, and attend here. Um, but today, uh, today's story, today's text brings with it some real weight. Um, like in our opening song, there is some gravity to what Jesus is about to say. He makes a statement here in John chapter 8 that is going to send the religious folks into, uh, of that day into, into this tizzy, right? He's going to make some good religious church people really uncomfortable with this statement. And... If I do my job this morning, I might make a lot of us in this room uncomfortable, right? Like even more than just changing the chairs around, right? So true story. We had a guy years ago who uh, we changed the chairs often here, um, and he, he left, and he, was, and, he, and he told me, and he was a grown man, told me that because I changed the chairs, he will not be coming back. He had developed a favorite spot, and it was secluded, and didn't have to talk to people, and it was uncomfortable there, and because I changed the chairs, he left and didn't come back. And so that's awesome. So um, this is my way of every once in a while thinning the herd. Um, so if this bothered you, you know, I'm like, man, there are so many other reasons to leave this church and you chose that one. I'm like, you don't, you don't get it. Um, but that's kind of my job, right? You know, that's my job to, to challenge your thinking, your, your beliefs, possibly your tradition. So, so let's go. Let's jump in, right? John 8. Uh, verse 12 says this, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is one of seven I am statements that are found in John's gospel. The first in chapter six, where it's, he says, I am the bread of life. And these sayings may appear very simple, almost childlike, but there's a lot going on here. The I am statements recall God's self-disclosure to Moses in Exodus, 
where he says, I am who I am. In these statements, the author of our curriculum that we, that we teach from on Sunday mornings that you hear here in this room and in the other rooms in the back, the kids also hear, Pete Enns says that Jesus is making uh, important claims to his own identity that echo this episode in Exodus. And there are two points that are being made here in John chapter 8. First, by claiming that he's the light of the world, Jesus is making a strong claim about his own intimacy with the Father. Similar to John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where Jesus is described as the one through whom all things exist and who is also the light of men. And by referring to himself as light, Jesus is claiming a unique relationship with the Father. Second, those who follow Jesus share in that light. Similar to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, where the disciples are called the light of the world. The light is not of their own making, but it is a light that comes from their relationship with Jesus. So claiming to be the light of the world is a metaphor Jesus uses to underline his claim to be sent by God and to be one with God. And also claiming to be the source of light for his disciples as they follow him wherever they go and are light themselves. In other words, Jesus claims to be the mediator between God and humanity. A claim that does not sit well with the religious leaders of that day. If you were to follow those verses after verse 12. Now, for you and I today, I don't think that that interpretation of Jesus' statements really bothers us, right? Like most of us, 2,000 years after the fact, after the cross, after the resurrection, we would agree with that statement, right? Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, but instead have the light of life. That's, that's good. For followers of Christ, that's not a hard thing to swallow. Most of us might and even do believe that. But I'm not sure that it's all Jesus was saying in this moment. And I believe that because of the story that comes right before he says this statement. And so for me, when I, when I read this this week, I wanted, to get, I wanted to go a little bit deeper than that. I felt like Jesus was trying to communicate more than just say, hey, I'm the son of God, follow me. And I think context is very important here. And I could be wrong with what I'm about to say. And if you've ever talked to my wife, chances are I'm not wrong. But here, here we go. Right? <laughs> okay, so we all, we all know the Bible is a, is a story, right? From beginning to end. It's not meant to be broken into chunks and, and, and just separated the way it is. Chapters and verses came much later after it was written down. And we know that the Gospels are the retelling of the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus only written down because those who had personally witnessed it were dying, right? And they didn't want the story to die with them, and so they began to write it down. They wanted to write down what they remembered. And so if we're looking at John's retelling of the story, what happens right before Jesus says this in chapter 8, verse 12? Well, Jesus, he's downtown. In fact, he's in the temple, right? And all the people kind of have gathered around him to, to hear what he has to say, to hear him teach. And then a group of religious people, they bring this woman and they stand her before Jesus. So you might remember the story, this woman and a man was caught in the act of adultery, right? And the Pharisees, they take her and they bring her to Jesus. It's kind of an 
interesting fact that you see the crowd, they only grabbed the woman. They didn't bring the man out to be humiliated, right, or, or judged, just the woman. And we know that in that culture and still in some places in this world and even in our country, women were considered and are considered less than. And so that would have been the norm for them. And you can hear some of the people in the crowd blaming the woman, right? Look how she's dressed. She deserved it. It's her fault. She was immoral. He's a victim. You know, we don't know. For all we know, it could have been a whole setup, right? The Pharisees, they were looking for a way to capture Jesus and accuse him of breaking the law. So they could have staged the whole thing, right? And when they felt that the woman was guilty, they grabbed her and brought her before Jesus. And so she's there and perhaps they bring her to test Jesus in a couple ways, right? How would he treat this woman in public? What would he say? How would he handle someone that was caught in sin? And they say to Jesus, the law of Moses says that we should kill her. She should be stoned to death. What do you say, Jesus? And then the crowd goes silent. Everyone waiting for Jesus to respond. And the story gets a little weird here, right? It says Jesus kneels down and he begins to write in the sand. And there's lots of speculation over the years to exactly what Jesus was writing down. But here's what I get. That ultimately Jesus realized that the hearts of the people in the crowd had grown dark. And they no longer see this woman. They no longer see her as a real person. But blinded by self-righteousness. Blinded by judgment. Blinded by hate. Their vision has been darkened. That the othering has blurred their ability to see this woman as anything more than a stranger, an outsider, or an outcast. Jesus is like, man, I need to reveal something here. I need to illuminate what's going on here. I need to, I need to open up their eyes. And he stands up and he makes a statement that allows her to be identified with everyone else in that crowd. He makes a connection that will change the way they see her and the way they see themselves in light of her. He says, if you're standing here and you've never done something that you've regretted or fell short of doing what was right, I want you to throw that first stone. And then he kneels back down and he begins to write again. One by one, they drop their stones and they begin to walk away. Legalistic, religious crowd, probably upset and disappointed that Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do. Jesus stands up again. He leans into the woman, into her ear, and he says, listen, man, nor I condemn you. So go home. Stop seeking acceptance like you've been. Stop looking for your identity and what men think of you. But you are a beloved daughter of God. So go and live in that identity. Because Jesus knew that she needed love more than he needed respect. And then he makes this claim to all that could still hear him. He says that I am the light of the world. That I'm going to give you a light in which you can see the world. I'm going to shine light into what you call darkness and reveal to you 
the people that I love. Fun fact about light, right? The source isn't always the point, right? Like what I mean by that is when you turn a lamp on in your bedroom or when you turn on the headlamp as you're walking down the trail, it's not so you can notice the lamp or, or, or the flashlight, right? It's so you could see what you couldn't see before. It shines a light into the darkness and reveals what was always there. Still, I don't think we're bothered by this story, right? Like nothing Jesus has said or done at this point, we, we probably don't disagree with any of it. We've all been there. We've all done things we wish we hadn't. We all agree that this woman didn't deserve to be stoned to death, right? Like this is one of the laws of Moses that we evangelical, evangelicals are okay with leaving in the Old Testament, like, right? And so what is so challenging for us today? What, what could really challenge us here? And today, I don't think we see it lived out any better than in how we treat the other, how we treat the stranger. Jesus tells us he is the light to the world, that if we follow him, we will not walk in darkness. In other words, here is the lens that I want you to see the world through. Here is the light to shine in the darkness. These are my sons and daughters created in my image, people that I love. If you follow me, this is how we're going to see the other in this light. If you love me, then you will love the people that I love. And we've been given the headlamps and the flashlights to see the world. But instead, we choose not to use them. We choose to look out at most of the world in the dark, right? And the sin of othering has made itself home in our hearts. Don't believe me? Turn on the news. Open your Facebook or Twitter app. We do not have much love for those who are not like us, who are the strangers, the foreigners, the, the travelers. And just in case you think that I might be twisting scripture or making this stuff up or reaching too far, how we treat the stranger is not just a part of our faith tradition, but it is a part of most, if not all, world religions. In the Baha'i tradition, it says this, that love and good faith must so dominate the human heart that men will regard the stranger as a familiar friend, the malefactor as one of their own, the alien even as a loved one, and the enemy as a companion dear and close. The Hindu tradition, let a person never turn away a stranger from his house, that is the rule. Therefore, a man should, by all means, acquire much food. For good people say to the stranger, there is enough food for you. In the Jewish, in the Jewish tradition, for the Lord your God is God supreme and Lord supreme, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who shows no favor and takes no bribe, but upholds the cause of the fatherless and the widow and befriends the stranger, providing him with food and clothing, you too must befriend the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. In the Muslim tradition, do good unto, unto your parents and near of kin, and unto orphans and the needy and the neighbor from among your own people, and the neighbor who is a stranger, and the friend by your side, the wayfarer, and your servants. 
in secular humanism. To feel the intimacy of brothers is a marvelous thing in life. To feel the love of people whom we love is a fire that feeds our life. But to feel the affection that comes from those whom we do not know, from those unknown to us, who are watching over our sleep and solitude, over our dangers and our weaknesses, that is something still greater and more beautiful because it widens out the boundaries of our being and unites all living things. In the Sikh tradition, none is our enemy. None is stranger to us. We are in accord with all and one. And in the Native American tradition from um, the Shawnee Nation, Chief Tecumseh says, always give a word or a sign of salute when meeting a passing friend, even a stranger when in a lonely place. Show respect to all people and grovel to none. If you're mostly familiar with our Christian tradition, there are over 40 verses specifically referring to our treatment of the stranger. I'm just going to read a couple. Hebrews 13, 2. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And in Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. It's true not because I say it's true. It's true because the creator of the universe says it's true. And he said it to all people. I'm going to cite two writings from John Koenig. One, of the, one is from the Anchor Bible Dictionary and the other is his book called New Testament Hospitality. But he says this. He says the practice of receiving a guest or stranger graciously was common to many social groups throughout the period of the Old Testament and New Testament when they were composed. These special nuances of hospitality, particularly with regard to the guest and the host role played by God or Christ, served to distinguish the notions of the biblical writers from those of their contemporaries. He says the word most often associated with hospitality in the Old Testament is xenos, which literally means foreigner, stranger, or even enemy. In its derived sense, however, the term comes to denote both guest and host alike. It's also important to notice that the word xenophobia means fear of strangers and foreigners. And knowing that helps us understand that being either guest or host often makes us fearful. The Hebrew scriptures are our Old Testament that contain no single word for hospitality, but the activity itself is prominent. Where residents of certain areas had obligation to welcome strangers. And these accounts within the Old Testament tell us about the need to provide shelter and nourishment to travelers who find themselves in hostile environments. And although the term hospitality does not appear in the Hebrew scriptures per se, we can find it through the practice of welcoming the stranger. Two stories from our sacred text, one in the Hebrew scriptures and the other in the New Testament. You remember back in Genesis, the story of Abraham and Sarah. They're out in the wilderness camping, two elderly um, individuals by themselves, and these three strangers come up out of the woods, right? 
And in that moment, most of us today, we'd, we'd probably have a different reaction, right? Like we'd run for the car or we'd run for the tent or run for the gun. You know, like we're, we're out there, we're scared, we're afraid. We got our kids with us, we want to protect, right? They obviously didn't have kids with them, which is where that story's going. Because in that moment, Abraham offers them something to drink, something to eat, a place to rest. And there, in that breaking of the bread, God was revealed as these men declared that Sarah would give birth. And through that son, God would bless many nations. You see in the New Testament, the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, two of them are walking. Jesus was just crucified. And they're walking and they don't know what just happened and they're afraid for their lives. They're fearing anything and everything. They've heard stories about other disciples being arrested, being chased down, and they're afraid, they're hiding. They're denying that they ever knew Christ. And a stranger approaches them. So what do they do? They, they run, right? They turn away. They don't want to be caught. Instead, they invite the stranger on to the conversation as they walk down the road. And they get to the, where they're going. And they say to the stranger, it's dark. Tired, you're probably hungry. Come in. Stay with us. Eat with us. And in the breaking of the bread, Jesus, their Lord and Savior, is revealed. See, if Abraham and Sarah don't welcome those strangers in, we may have a Hebrew Bible that's about eight chapters long. If the disciples don't welcome in the stranger and break bread, we may not have the church as we know it without the witnesses of the living God. In his book, The New Testament Hospitality, Koenig says, when the author of Hebrews refers to Abraham's encounter with the three strangers and to Jesus as he is depicted in the Gospels, these figures instruct us that strangers may be God's special envoys to bless or challenge us. Like our Hebrew ancestors, Christians are called to move beyond our fears and extend hospitality by receiving the stranger. And we are to do this because hostile environments demand such courtesy. And in welcoming the stranger, we may be encountering God's messenger. He says that hospitality is seen as one of the pillars of morality in which the universe stands. When guests and hosts violate their obligations to each other, the whole world shakes and retribution follows. See Sodom and Gomorrah. Our New Testament witnesses emphasize the presence of God or Christ in ordinary exchanges between human guests and hosts. And as a result, the qualities of hospitality in great number take on an equal significance alongside the moral ones. Henry Nouwen, in 1975, wrote a book called Reaching Out, and his words are so fitting today. You would think he wrote them, but he's dead, so he didn't. But here's what his words are. In our world full of strangers, estranged from their own past, 
culture, and country, from their neighbors, friends, and family, from the deepest self, and from their God. We witness a painful search for a hospitable place where life can be lived without fear and where community can be found. Although many, we might even say most, strangers in this world become easily the victim of a fearful hostility. It is possible for men and women who follow Christ to offer and open a hospitable place where strangers can cast off their strangeness and become our fellow human beings. That the movement from hostility to hospitality is hard and full of difficulties. And our society seems to be increasingly full of fearful, defensive, aggressive people anxiously claiming and clinging to their property, inclined to look at the surrounding world with suspicion, always expecting the enemy to suddenly appear and intrude and do them harm. But still, as followers of Christ, this is our vocation, to convert the hostess to the hospice, the enemy into a guest, and to create free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. At first, the word hospitality, it might invoke some image of soft, sweet kindness, right? Tea parties and bland conversations and a general atmosphere of coziness. It's good reason since in our culture, the concept of hospitality has, has lost much of that power. It's often used just in circles where we are more prone to expect a watery-down piety than a serious search for authentic Christian spirituality. But he says, still, if there is any concept worth restoring, it's in its original depth. It's the concept of hospitality. He says it's one of the richest biblical terms that can deepen and broaden our inside and our relationships to our fellow human beings. That Old Testament and New Testament stories not only show how serious our obligation is to welcome the stranger into our homes, but they also tell us that guests are carrying precious gifts with them, which they are eager to reveal to a receptive host. When Abraham and Sarah received the three strangers and offered them water, bread, and a fine, tendered calf, they revealed themselves as a Lord, announcing that Sarah would give birth to a son. When the two travelers on the road to Emmaus invite the stranger who had joined them on the road to stay with them for the night, he made himself known in the breaking of the bread as their Lord and Savior. And when hostility is converted into hospitality, then fearful strangers can become guests, revealing to their hosts the promise that they are carrying to them. Then, in fact, he says, the distinction between hosts and guests prove to be artificial, and they evaporate in the recognition of a new found unity. Thus, the biblical stories help us realize that, that not only hospitality is an important virtue, but even more then in the context of hospitality, guests and hosts can reveal their most precious gifts and bring new life to each other.
will invite the band to join me on stage. This is how we're going to close. Church, we are called to welcome the stranger. If you claim to follow Jesus and believe in him and follow his teachings, then you are to welcome in the stranger and show hospitality to them. And it's not just the people who are yet to come through these doors or through these borders. Some of you are strangers to the person sitting a few rows in front of you or behind you. Not because you might not know their name, maybe you don't, but not because of that, but because you do know their name. But you also know the the other things about them too. And you refuse to see them as anything more than other. Like they're a stranger to you and you've chosen hostility over hospitality. They're not like you. They don't talk like you. They don't vote like you. They don't live like you, like, like, you sh- like they should live, like you think they should. And so they are other. They don't belong. And I'm not sure there is any other symbol more than the table that brings us together and allows us to see Jesus revealed in the other than when we break bread together. And so this is what we're going to do this moment. The band is going to play. I've invited a, a couple people to come up and help to serve communion, and they're going to set up a station to my right and to my left. They're going to have the bread, and they're going to have the juice. I'm going to invite everyone to come and be a part of communion to take. If you're a visitor with us, you're open. You're welcome to come. Our table is open to all who want to come. But you're going to make lines coming down the middle, and you'll take communion, and you'll head back. You'll take a piece of bread, and you'll dip it, and then you'll take it, and then you can go back to your seats. Don't You don't have to carry it all the way back to your seats. You can take it right there. But this is the table that kind of levels the playing field for us. The the symbols of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ at the cross draws us all in at equal footing where we're all invited to come. So whether you find yourself on either side of the story as the stranger or maybe as one that had a hard time Accepting the stranger, this cup, this bread is for you to take, to remember what Christ did for us, that by grace and faith in him that we're saved. And that's the message that we send out, that we give to others. That Christ loved us before he knew us, before we knew him, before we were formed. He loved us, chose us, created us in his image. And that's our story to tell others. So I invite you to go ahead and stand. The band's going to sing a song. The lyrics are on the screen, but you're welcome to come down the middle and kind of separate and go to either side and take communion and then head to your seat. Oh
of every shadow Have we not hope In the deepest of the dark Have we not peace That passes understanding I meant to mention before we took communion that that was, it would be gluten-free bread. So if that's your stomach is bothering you, it's not the gluten. That's something else. Um, but we do want to provide that for everyone so that you can feel welcome to take part in that. I'm going to read to you an affirmation of faith, and we're going to close with a song um, together. So I'm going to invite you back to your seats as I read this over, over our community. We believe in the infinite worth of every human being. We believe with our worth is ultimately derived not by what others think of us or even by what we think of ourselves, but by what God thinks of us. We affirm that God loves each one of us with a richness and depth that is beyond our wildest imaginations. We believe that every human being falters and fails at times and needs the forgiving love of God to keep going. And we know that each of us becomes deadened to our world and to our brothers and sisters. And so we need the enliving power of God's Holy Spirit to be with us, bringing us alive again. Each of us faces the terrifying unknown we call death. And this is why God's promise of eternal life sealed in Jesus holds out so much hope for us. And we know that even though our lives may be filled with great trouble and sorrow, that God never deserts us 
and never gives up on us. With this faith firm in our hearts, we can shout with the saints of all the ages, Alleluia. Stand and let's sing this last song together. No question. 
So we're going to make this place bigger. We're going to add seats around the table, and we're going to journey together as a faith community. Like Marge Piercy says in her poem called The Low Road, she says it starts when you say we and know who you mean, and each day you mean one more. We're going to end our service the same way we began worship by a responsive reading. I'm going to read one thing and you're going to read the next. Go now remembering what we have done here. Go remembering that you are forgiven people, eternally loved, thoughtfully instructed, gratefully obedient, responding and responsible wherever you are. You can never be the same again. May God's peace and joy be with you, so be it. Guys, I love you. We'll see you next week. Please don't forget the baskets for your giving in the front and the back. Enjoy your week. We'll see you, we'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>